Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In the National Archives in Dublin, there's a haunting 700-year-old letter written by a Norman settler in Wicklow. The author of the letter was a man called Hugh Lawless and he wrote to the Norman authorities in Dublin in 1316 begging for help. These are his words. By the malice and the wantonness of the Irish in the mountains of Leinster, we have been expelled and removed from our fortresses, manors and houses. And many of the faithful subjects of the king have been slain by said Irish felons. We are now in a confined and narrow part of the country, namely between Newcastle and Wicklow, with the sea between Wales and Ireland for a wall on the one side, and the mountains of Leinster, and diverse other wooded and deserted places on the other. In this letter, Hugh Lawless was giving voice to the fears of all Norman settlers in Wicklow. Their world was in a state of collapse. As the letter spelled out, settlement after settlement was being overrun by the native Gaelic Irish. While some would be recaptured and the Normans would, in the end, manage to hang on, deeper in the Wicklow Mountains, away from the coast, the situation was very different. One of the major Norman settlements in Wicklow, a place called Castle Kevin, was lost and over the following decades would be completely abandoned. In 1581, when an English army reached Castle Kevin, they would describe it as, I came to Castle Kevin, which were the ruins of old fortifications made by the English at the conquest. In the following centuries, the story of Castle Kevin, once a thriving town and then a frontier fortress, was almost completely lost. Its medieval history has been entirely forgotten, and today, what remains of the site is in danger of being completely lost. However, now a local group, the Roundwood District Historical and Folklore Society, have embarked on an ambitious plan to conserve what remains of the castle and find out more about what life was like in this lost town. 
Over the last summer, they allowed me to record this process as they worked with a team of experts from archaeologists to historians and ecologists, using some of the most cutting-edge technology to find out more of the intriguing story. In this podcast, you will hear what happened and what was discovered. If this is your first time tuning in, my name is Finn Dwyer and this is the Irish History Podcast. Additional narrations are from Aidan Crow, and sound is from Case Dunley. To start, I need to bring you on a journey to Castle Kevin, where this medieval town and fortress was located in a remote part of the Wicklow Mountains. Today, it's a beautiful spot, but if you've never heard of it, you're not alone. As I say, Castle Kevin is pretty remote. To give you a general sense of where I'm talking about, it's located a few miles northeast of one of Ireland's best-known historic sites, the Monastery of Glendalough. But it's well off the beaten track. Even people who live close by don't realise there's a castle there, as local historian Martin Timmons now explains. Yeah, I would say, like... uh... Most most local people or young young people would wouldn't even know the road that it's on, you know, and um, they'd know they'd know the townland of Castle Kevin, but um, it's I, I'd say even now most most people in the area wouldn't actually know where the site is because it's kind of a mysterious site in that sense, you know. You know all the history and the written history is there when you when you drive. When you drive by, you don't see really anything, so there's not much for people to see compared to, say, like Glendalough. Indeed, even if I brought you to the site today, you'd be forgiven for wondering if you were in the wrong place. It just looks like a normal field, but the land rises at the western end into a mound covered with trees and bushes. There's no sign of a castle, let alone a town. We do know this is the right place, though, from historical records. In the 1830s, for example, a visitor recorded, Castle Kevin is a spacious, quadrangular area, encompassed by a deep ditch and a rampart, which, with some of the foundations, is all that remained of the ancient fortress. And one of the few pictures of the castle, taken around 1908 for a historic article at the time, indicates it was more or less the same then. That said, when you visit the site today, it looks pretty different. As I say, it's completely overgrown. However, from local knowledge alone, it is clear that some of the castle survives somewhere beneath all the thickets and trees and scrub that covers the site. Mary Rochford, for example, who lives in Castle Kevin, was able to explain her memories of the site when it was less overgrown. I think the the archway years ago fell down. There was one archway anyway, and... uh, the surrounds of how the thing worked were more visible. Well, obviously, yeah. I'm very old now, and it's well over 60 years since I can even rem- I do remember it then. With this knowledge, one of the first steps undertaken in this project was just to walk the site, to record exactly what was there, and hopefully find what Mary described there. So it was on an extremely wet summer's day that I joined two archaeologists, Yvonne Whitty and Ivor Kenny, at Castle Kevin. Yvonne has worked closely with the Roundwood District Historical and Folklore Society in developing the plan to conserve the site. 
and she led the way down a steep bank at the edge of the field. It was about three metres deep. Wow. Incredible. So what are we looking at here, Yvonne? This is the gatehouse and the collapse section of the gatehouse. So you can see it must be 10 metres in length and height-wise, it must be, gosh, nine, ten metres also. And um, But what we're looking at here is a massive hole where all the stones and that have collapsed down. We were actually in the moat of the castle, looking up, as Yvonne explained there, at the gatehouse. We'd clearly found what Mary Rotterdam had described. Next, we pushed our way through that small hole Yvonne mentioned, crawling up a steep bank. This revealed more walls inside, but as you're about to hear, they're pretty perplexing. But the ivy is holding it up, isn't it? Look at that, uh, that branch is acting like an arm, nearly like scaffolding. This wall doesn't line up with anything here. If it's a return, it doesn't line up with this. No, it doesn't. As a return. That's going that way, yeah. yeah. But in the photograph, there is a wall the whole way around. The, you know, you have the gatehouse, and then you've got a wall, like a stone revetment the whole way around. Once Ivor and Yvonne had completed this part of the survey, the next step was to bring in drones and other cutting-edge equipment to survey what's beneath the surface and to try and find out more about the site. But before we go there, we need to take a look back at the history of Castle Kevin. I want to give you a better sense of what exactly archaeologists were hoping to find there. We've talked a bit about the history, but there's a lot more to it. So the history of Castle Kevin can be divided into two phases. A more peaceful early phase, and then that pretty violent phase I mentioned at the start of the show when it was a frontier fortress. Now from the historical record, it would appear that Castle Kevin was built after the year 1216. In that year, much of Wicklow fell under Norman control, but this didn't happen at the point of a sword as it did elsewhere in Ireland. In that year, the Diocese of Glendalough was absorbed into the Diocese of Dublin. This move also saw huge tracts of land pass into direct control of the Archbishops of Dublin, who were exclusively Anglo-Normans, and they basically ran these estates much like any other Anglo-Norman lord would have at the time. So as was the Norman custom, they divided them into what were called manors, basically large farms, which were controlled from a central castle. Therefore, in the 1220s, the Archbishop of Dublin at the time, Henry of London, started to build not only a castle at Castle Kevin, which obviously gives it its name, but also a town. Martin Timmons, the local historian, explains what we know from historical records about life in these early years. Around 1225, I think, the first market was granted for Castle Kevin, which shows how quickly it became important. So the site here must have been must have been built around 1220. I mean, the market itself obviously indicates that there were a lot of people living in the area. I also spoke to Chris Corley, an archaeologist with the National Monument Service. Chris is local to Wicklow and an expert on the history of the area. He explained how the mountains were more economically vibrant back then. Alongside animals, oats would have been widely grown, which were used as fodder, and then obviously there was a huge timber trade, as he explains here. The other big industry in, in this part of the country was timber. The wood industry was extremely important. Of course, a lot of what we see today is a modern timber industry. But throughout the late medieval period, it was well known that this was a very densely forested area. And the archbishop 
owned a lot of this forestry and I'm sure was capitalizing on having that, that, uh, that timber there as a source of revenue. As Chris created a picture of a vibrant settlement, I asked him then, what might archaeologists be looking for or what would you expect to find here? The castle itself, possibly a, a village and a small town even around this or a proto-town that had its own market. We know the bishop had held court here, so there was definitely active management of the estate here. There was probably milling going on because of the type of agriculture in this that the archbishop was very fond of. So we, there had to be a mill here, for example, to serve the estate. The revenue from that mill would go to the archbishop, of course. And I think there had to be a church here as well. So where is that church? So therefore, while there's no trace of a settlement today, Chris had outlined a lot of features that simply don't disappear. There is the castle, but he also talked about a fully functioning town, and that should be somewhere on the site, possibly beneath the surface. We also know from other sites that early Norman settlements took a very distinct form known as a Motten Bailey. Now, next, you're going to hear Yvonne, the archaeologist we met earlier, explaining what a Motten Bailey is. This is recorded from a local community information evening held in the town of Roundwood. So what they were, as you can see from the picture on the right, they were a, a steep, um, sided, flat-topped earthen mound and they would have supported a wooden tower initially and this would have been replaced then um, with a stone tower. And the, in front of that there was a courtyard or a bailey and which was often raised and then enclosed by a banker or a foss and if there was a nearby stream that was often diverted to form like a moat around it. What Yvonne describes there is important because it helps focus the survey. Basically, now we know that something like a Motten Bailey should be visible in this area. And there are some pretty interesting features in the local landscape. For example, beside the castle site, which we heard about earlier, there's a large subrectangular field, exactly the type of shape that you'd expect from a bailey or where the town was located. So this was all really positive. However, I should say that this field is completely empty today. So to find out if there is actually that medieval town there, it was clear that something more than the naked eye would be needed. Therefore, it was with this in mind that I was able to join members of the local history society at the site of the castle for a pretty exciting day last summer. All eyes were focused on Dr. Paul Nason's as he unpacked a drone from a case and then launched it into the sky. While it was taking pictures like most normal drones, it was also conducting a LiDAR survey. I asked Paul exactly what he was doing. The LiDAR camera is basically a laser scanner. So um, we send a drone up and it shoots out 240,000 points of um, laser beams, if you like, or um, per second. Each one of those then bounces off the ground and returns to the camera. What we can do then when we have maybe 100 million points from the site, we can separate out those points and select the ones that take the longest time to return back to the camera. And those longest returns are obviously the ones that are penetrating through the vegetation and hitting the ground. We can then construct what's called a point cloud uh, from those and reconstruct a 3D model of what the bare earth ground surface is like underneath the, the vegetation. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello 
Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy, and BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone, or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash irishhistory. Now, a few weeks after that, there was another survey conducted on the site. This time, Dr. Ger Dowling had arrived to carry out what's called a geophysical survey. This was slightly less dramatic. There was no drone involved. But as Ger explains, this one could penetrate the ground and possibly reveal if there was actually that medieval town in that field. And maybe even, if we were lucky, he might be able to tell the outline of buildings and how big it was. So, yeah, on a site like this, so we're going to use a magnetic survey, and this is very good for, for finding buried ditches. Basically, it's, it looks like a flat field, but underneath the sur- ground surface may be the remains of ditches that have been infilled or buried over time, or perhaps through deliberate action. And, on, and perhaps the uh, magnetic survey will help find uh, these buried ditches and maybe house sites, uh, also uh, evidence for maybe metalworking or, or kilns. And uh, and also, we'll also probably find a lot of pits and features like that. Having conducted these surveys, Ger and Paul went away to process their aspect of the work. And while we'll hear the results later, over the following weeks, Faith Wilson visited the site to bring her expertise to the project. Now, Faith is an ecologist, which is not necessarily what you expect to hear about an archaeological or a historical survey. But her insights were intriguing in terms of the later history of the site. Now, you may remember I said that Castle Kevin has two distinct phases to its history. While it started as a Norman settlement in the mountains, it began to change around 1270. The Gaelic-Irish O'Toole family began to attack the Norman settlements and Castle Kevin, deep in the mountains, was vulnerable. Chris Corley explains how the Archbishop, you'll remember they were actually the lords of Castle Kevin, 
just weren't able to handle this new military situation and the site changed in nature and became a military outpost. But when it comes to military intervention that's required to try and put manners on the O'Toole's, he just doesn't have those capabilities. So effectively he has to go to the authorities and the authorities say, right, we're going to use Castle Kevin now as a staging post. So initially they're using Newcastle McKinnigan, which was a royal castle, one of the biggest castles in the country, although it doesn't look like it today perhaps. And, and that had been their stronghold in the, in, in the region and also the staging post for campaigns against the O'Toole's. But then they decide that they need to get right into the area, into the region itself. And from Newcastle McKinnigan, they move into Castle Kevin itself and, and has tried to establish that as their foothold in the area and, we, uh, and use that to take on the O'Toole's directly. So with this in mind, Faith Wilson, along with the archaeologists Yvonne and Ivor, walked the site. Faith was able to see the landscape as it was, rather than just how it is today. She spent much of her time focused in a low-lying area to the north of the castle, explaining how this specific area had changed over time and what it was like back in the Middle Ages. This whole low-lying area is where the animal fen used to be. Okay. Yeah, so this was a wetland site. So even as, as recently as 1972, it was surveyed by Unfurs Verbaha and it was known as the Animo Fen and it was listed as an area of scientific interest. But it's at that time, but it's been drained and I think infilled also to try and get grazing land on it. She also explained how this fen may have been one of the reasons why the Normans were drawn to the site. The marsh was defensive as well, like... Yeah. It's hard going slogging across a, a marsh and yeah. you you're, you're can be seen. Yeah, we must you know, whereas, whereas if you're coming through woodland, you, you, you're suddenly on something. Like it's very hard to see people in a wood. People disappear very quick. Whereas in an open marsh fen habitat, she just stick out like a sore thumb. You can imagine how that fen would have been increasingly important as time passed by and life at Castle Kevin became more difficult and it was being attacked more frequently by the native Gaelic Irish. As we walked across the site that day, Faith was also able to point out how our ancestors back in the 13th century would have been able to use local resources in a way that's probably largely forgotten today. From a military point of view, she explained how things like sphagnum moss were a key resource. Um, what, one of the plants that there is when you go further downstream to the wetter bit is sphagnum mosses, and, and they're a fantastic plant for healing wounds. So, so sphagnum mosses hold nine times their own weight in water or of blood. Okay. And, you know, sphagnum was collected and exported from Ireland in the First World War to the, to the front line, to the trenches, for, for treating wounds because it, it absorbs so much and also it has a somewhat uh, medicinal qu- uh, qualities as well, where it helps stop infection. She also pointed out an oak tree and explained its multiple uses. Like this is a native oak and that, that is here naturally. And, and was of huge importance in, in medieval times. You know, you think of um, fodder for animals, for pigs, there was what there was. It wasn't the ink for writing the Book of Kells made from oak, uh, oak gold, acorns, yeah. galls. You know, like there was flour made from acorns. It was really used, and then the whole bark stripped for tanning leather and preserving leather, like a multitude of uses. 
So a really important tree. While fate had significantly added to the growing picture of what life at Castle Kevin was like, there was a lot of anticipation building around the results of the LIDAR and geophysical survey that Paul and Ger had conducted. They could possibly reveal what the town was like in what is essentially an empty field today. It was in late August, during Heritage Week, that the Roundwood and District Historical and Folklore Society hosted an information evening in Roundwood, where people could hear what the results of these surveys were. Ger wasn't able to attend, but Yvonne the archaeologist revealed the results of the geophysical survey. Sometimes these can be quite underwhelming when you see them. They're basically maps with lines drawn on them and they need to be interpreted. Unfortunately, in the case of the geophysical survey, Ger had had concerns that later activity might obscure the medieval archaeology, and this was borne out. There was no evidence of the town at all. However, as Yvonne now explains, he did find something very significant close to the castle. So if you look at that purple dot up in the corner, this is potentially um, a lime kiln. And what lime kilns were, was they were used, there were structures where there was a hole dug in the ground, um, lime was thrown in, limestone was thrown into it, there was a fire lit, and then the heat source, they, they were burnt for days on end. And then after the lime was burned, you ended up with quick lime. And that was used as a building material and it was retrieved from the bottom of the kiln. And if you look at all of the masonry around Castle Kevin, even as it stands today, the gate tower, everything is bound with lime. So we wouldn't be 100% sure until you excavate that, but I think it's a good, I suppose, educated guess as to what that feature might be. This is intriguing because we know from the records of a military campaign in 1309 that a kiln was built on the site. While this was fascinating, the hopes of finding a settlement in this location were starting to diminish. You would have to wonder, would they really build a smoky kiln in the middle of a town if that's where people were living? Perhaps it was possible the town was never built. Next, at that event, Dr Paul Nasons took the floor. Paul had conducted the LIDAR. Basically, you'll remember it, it was the one with the drone. And he generally agreed that there simply wasn't evidence of a town where we had expected to find it. However, he then switched his focus to another field close to the castle that hadn't been the focus of much attention yet. It looks like a pretty regular field today, but as he showed his survey results, he was able to point to a series of lines and explained. So we definitely have something here. We don't know what it is uh, as yet, but what's intriguing about these straight lines is that they could possibly... The Eye of Faith be uh, what are called burgage plots. Now, if you were an Anglo-Norman lord or an archbishop in this case, and you wanted to farm here and you wanted to set up a village here, you needed somebody to come and live there. The Gaelic Irish were quite frequently quite aggressive and opposed to you being there, so you couldn't necessarily, I mean, maybe it may have been disloyal, as we've seen from the rebellions. So what you did was you went to England, you went to Wales, you went to Flanders, and you tried to attract people over. And the way you did that was you had to offer them something to come over to such a dangerous uh, environment. So what you offered them was a uh, burgage status. Uh, so that they basically were granted a strip of land, usually a long, narrow strip of land. And then they were given uh, other rights outside, maybe given grazing lands and commonages and that, in return for actually coming and settling here. So they actually were much better off than they would have been at home. And this was the attraction. So we think that there is a small possibility that there might be burgage plots here, directly to the west of the Mott. This tantalising glimpse concluded what will hopefully be the first of several years of work at Castle Kevin. 
This year started the process, not only identifying a potential site for that lost town, but so much more. However, like so much archaeology, it asked more questions than it answered. At the end of their presentations, both Paul and Yvonne speculated about where future work could take the project and what it should focus on. Here are Yvonne's thoughts. And what we would really like to do is perhaps, once the ecological surveys are done, is clear back the vegetation from around the gatehouse and the corner tower, see what state is in, record it by photograph, and perhaps it might be possible then um, to, to conserve some of it, if it's possible. You would have to get a conservation engineer in to see what the structure is like, because in a lot of these cases, IFE is ho- holding up the structures. This is Paul's thoughts on what should happen in the future. I mean, the possibility of excavation, if that uh, programme of geophysics did show something up or show something significant up. Um, but there is definitely something archaeological in that field. Whether uh, I, I've, worked on, I've worked on a very famous moth in uh, Granard in Longford, and we dug where we thought the village was, and we found uh, Bronze Age, Iron Age, Early Christian, Late Medieval, and post-medieval. We missed, there was nothing there that was high medieval which was associated with the moth. So we came to the conclusion there that the, when you look, if you fly over Longford, we, I've mapped it, uh, or fly over Granard, if you go down through the main street, all the gardens and the yards behind the houses are still these long strips. And we reckon that the town is in on top of all the burgage plots, that that's where they built the town. Um, here, you've got a better chance maybe of finding something because it's open. But again, um, I wouldn't stake my life on it being high medieval. It could be later, but there's definitely settlement in that field. So that's all I can really say about it uh, for now. Until maybe Christmas, we might know a little bit more. uh, And maybe there might be geophysics at some stage again. Thank you. To finish, I'd like to thank involved in the project. Everyone, and firstly, the Roundwood and District Historical and Folklore Society and their generosity with their time. Monument Service Community Monuments Fund, Wicklow County Council Heritage Officer Deirdre Burns, Yvonne Whitty, Dr Paul Nasons, Faith Wilson, Ivor Kenny, Dr Gerard Dowling, Martin Timmons, Chris Corley and Catherine Wright in Wicklow County Archives. Until next time, Sloan. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.